So worship is one of those words that we love to throw around in church worlds. We call our service a worship service. When we sing, we call it worship. And we're led in worship by the worship team. And the worship team has a worship leader. And sometimes here we've even prayed and we've, and we've told God stories as an act of worship. And our life is supposed to reflect a life lived in worship. And it's worship, worship, worship. When you throw it around, and I think sometimes we really lose the full meaning of what God intended worship to be. We lose the idea of what God hopes that we would, how we would live our lives in worship. That it would be more than just singing and raising our hands and, and the things that take place in, in this building or in the buildings across the world. What is God's idea of worship? In Isaiah chapter 1, there's some really interesting things going on, and God is, God is um, trying to help Israel realize, help them better understand what he wants worship to be. So let's turn Isaiah chapter 1. Now chapter 1 begins with um, God kind of yelling at Israel. And telling them, you know, you haven't been, you haven't been doing the right things. In fact, these things are really simple. They're just, they're just com- things against common decency and common sense. In fact, Isaiah will say, you know, even animals know better than the way you are behaving. And God just goes through and he's like, for real? I mean, are you really doing this? And then we get to, to verse 10 of Isaiah. This is, this is what God says. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Listen to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah. The multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me, says the Lord? I have more than enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and the lambs and goats. You have come to appear before me. Who has asked this of you, this trampling of my courts? Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. New moons, Sabbaths, and convocations, I cannot bear bear your evil assemblies. Your new moon feasts and your appointed festivals, I hate with all my being. They have become a burden to me. I am wary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Even if you offer many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. This is a pretty serious accusation against Israel from God. Now, the word instruction in verse 10, the word is, in the Hebrew, is Torah. It's, it's the word for teaching, or it's the word for law. And what it says here, that, that God's teachings have been given. And it's not some legalistic prescription, so you can find the seven easy steps to get righteous. God's teachings... God's law has to do with character and attitudes and relationships. And the ceremonies that were taking place in Israel, they should never, they they can symbolize those things, but they should never replace them. You cannot replace relationship with some ceremony. You cannot replace character or integrity just with some ceremony. And God's charges against them to say, this is what you've been doing. It seems that religion always finds a way to maximize the physical, yet minimize the spiritual. And Israel is caught up in their religion. We can very easily measure how many times we go to church, how many chapters we read, how many chapter verses we can just memorize and spit out there. 
We can, we can measure how many hours or how many times we pray, or we got 30 minutes of our quiet time, how many times we, they went to the temple. These are all very measurable physical things. But how do you measure loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? I don't think there's an app for that. And so religion always seems to maximize the physical and yet so often minimizes the spiritual. Now, there's another thing going on for Israel. It's a very common practice of their day, very cultic practice in all of the, the nations that, that are surrounding them. Um, there's this idea that the representative and a person being represented, if proper procedures are followed... Proper ceremony are followed. These two things can become one. I'll give you an example. If somebody does something wrong in some of these cultic religions, they could take an animal, and if the proper ceremony is taken place, if they follow the proper steps and procedures, this animal can take on the identity of this person. Now, this person has done something wrong, but instead of killing this person, they will kill the animal, and in essence, the person has been punished and died. This is a very common cultic practice um, in the countries around uh, Israel. Now, it's very similar to we find in the Old Testament when the high priest would lay his hands on top of the scapegoat and he would confess all of the sins of the nation. And they would take that goat and they would lead it out of the camp and all of Israel's sins would go with them and they would be forgiven. Very same in, in its idea. But the problem, what happens is there becomes a sense that there's no need to repent because there could, we can follow the proper ceremony and we're all good. There's no need for a change of heart. And there, there is no repentance. And if there is no change of heart, then ultimately there is no change in our behavior. And so blessing comes regardless of your heart or even your actions that we can, we can just meld an animal to the person. We go through the steps and we kill the animal or get rid of it and we have been forgiven. And so for Israel, it was very easy to focus on the number of sacrifices, how many times they prayed, how many times they were in the temple, how much incense they were burning as long as they met their quota. And this is what God is talking to them about. If they just went through the motions, everything was okay. Israel played church. They did all of the external stuff, but their hearts were far from God. And it was showing in the way they lived every day, in the relationship to God. In fact, God will say, you know what? Your worship ceremonies have become a burden to me. I don't even like them anymore. He goes, I don't need your sacrifices. Religion became their excuse to live outside of the harmony that God had called them to. And, and, and even when they prayed, God's like, you know what? Don't bother. Don't bother. You know what? I'm gonna, I, don't even, I don't even see your hands lifted to me in prayer. And if you're going to pray, you know what? Don't even bother praying. I'm not going to hear you when you're praying. I mean, this is, this is heavy stuff. This is God talking to the people. Imagine if God said this to us. I would be really nervous. But this is what God is telling them. You know what? Don't even bother praying. I don't hear you anyway. And then he will tell them this. This is what I expect of you. Verse 16. Wash and make yourselves clean. 
which is a way of saying repent. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Encourage the oppressed. Defend the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. At the very core, the requirements of God are so simple. God's heart is a very simplistic heart. And what it comes down to, this is God's point. This is what he's saying. This whole chapter is he's saying, listen, people, you need to take responsibility for your lives and for your actions or the grace of God is meaningless. Religion is not something that we do. Religion is not something that's done for us. Religion should be a way of thinking and engaging and living our lives in response to God's grace. But in order for that to happen, we need to begin to take responsibility. Israel needed to take responsibility for their actions, and they were caught up in playing the religious game. They were caught up in this external sense of worship. Ceremony has a way of putting and pushing God into the past, and and a ceremony just makes God very very person-centered and person-pleasing and makes God very comfortable to deal with. And he's in this nice little box instead of a very deep trusting relationship with an ever-present sovereign God. This is what Israel was missing. They were doing church, but they neglected a relationship with God. Worship is a condition of our heart. Worship, our hearts are formed by the very thing that we end up worshiping. What is most important in our lives? What is the most important thing in your life? What matters most to you? That will be the thing of your affection. That will be the thing of your hope. That will be the thing that creates excitement and passion in you. That's what worship is. Now, during this time of Advent, week one of Advent, what should be the focus of our worship? Anyone? Jesus. Correct answer. But I would say this. Is it the truthful answer? It is the correct answer. If you've been in Sunday school at all, that's what they teach you. The reason for the season is Jesus. I really hate that saying, but I mean, it's just so trite. It is the right answer, but it is, is it the truthful answer? How we spend our time, how we spend our money, how we spend our energy, is this reflecting our heart of worship to Jesus? Just because we say Jesus is the meaning for the season, the reason for the season, does not make it true in our own lives. We can regurgitate all of the, the, the corny little Christian sayings we want, but is it, is he the object of our worship? Is it the desire of our hearts? Many of us need to take a long look, a deep look into our hearts to see what's there. But at best, we don't like to go there. There's some really ugly stuff in your heart, not mine, but because I'm a pastor, in your hearts. <laughs> I'm sorry. And and it's just better if it stays put and nobody sees it. And and it's just nice and safe. It's in the dark. 
And, it, and it's easier just to, just to give the answer we're trained to give. It's easier just to say the things we're supposed to say. It's easier to go through the motions like we're supposed to go through the motions. And nobody will really know the difference. Except God. I think he should be the priority and not, I'm sorry, all of you in my life. You know, it's interesting. Kids, um, kids have a really funny way of not caring about that type of thing. Kids aren't afraid to t- say what's, what's on their mind. If you ask a small child, what is, what's their excitement about this Christmas holiday? There's a very slim chance you will get the answer that God has incarnated himself in the man Jesus and he's fully divine yet fully human. Most of you wouldn't say that anyway, right? So, so you would not get a child to say, I'm excited about the birth of Jesus for Christmas. Unless, of course, he's gone through Sunday school and we're three weeks in and he's heard it over and over again. What excites a child about Christmas is presence. And then, and then maybe after Sunday school, they get the idea that it's the Jesus thing. I learned that. Remember last week? I learned that really profound truth when I asked my son. Christmas is about love. No, it's not about presence. Oh, yeah, and Jesus. And so they're not afraid. To, and listen, presents aren't a bad thing on Christmas. Believe me, watching my son rip open a pile of presents is pretty cool. I like it. I remember the first Christmas, my daughter, she was sick. Uh, she was born in May, so by Christmas, she was a few months old. She was more intrigued with the wrapping paper than any of the gifts, which was funny because all these people bought expensive gifts for a six-month-old. I'm not quite sure why, but anyway. So, so, but, but there's nothing wrong with presents on Christmas. But that can't be our primary focus. And we adults, we will desire the thing that, that, that is deep in our hearts. And that thing that's in our hearts will inspire us to worship. What is the desire of your heart? I want to encourage us, we, you, me, to take a long look into our heart this Advent season. Begin to go through the inventory of what's there and see what is the most important thing to us. Is it a cultural Christmas or is it the biblical Christmas? And it's interesting that this time of year, it really should be easy to worship God. It really should be easy to worship Jesus. It should be a slam dunk, but it seems to be the hardest time to actually do it. It's difficult to worship, worship, fully worship, this time of year. We should be looking into the deep mysteries of our faith. This is, this is an amazing story. This is one of the best stories that has ever been lived out in history. God revealing himself to his creation. God showing, God teaching, God living right before us and showing us how to live in harmony with himself. Fully God here on earth and fully man. Get your mind around that for a while. But this is what Christmas is. But yet it's so hard for us sometimes to worship during this time of year. But you know what I found? The, um, the people that were part of the original Christmas story, the first advent, most of them, not all of them, most of them had the same response to what was going on. And that response was worship. 
Mary, the unwed teenage mom of Jesus. She is poor. She is powerless. She's a peasant. She comes from some small town. There's nothing significant about her, about her family, or about where she lives. And one day this, this angel Gabriel comes down. He's like head honcho angel. You don't mess with this dude. And he comes down and he says, yo, Mary, like it's going down. Things are going to happen. And, and she's, she's a little perplexed. The story says, she's like, hmm, I'm thinking. And, she go, and the angel says, you have found favor in God's eyes and you are going to have a son and you're going to call him Jesus. And she thinks for a moment and she says, well, um, yeah, how? And he says, don't worry about it. The Holy Spirit is going to come upon you and take care of all the how. And she's like, all right, well, let, let's bring it. Let's bring it. And then she writes this, this song of worship. Turn to Luke chapter 1. And start reading in verse 46. And Mary said, my soul glorifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. For he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me. His holy is his name. Mary says, my soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in him. She is recognizing from deep down in her, in her very being what God is doing. She knows and she recognizes God is on the move and she has been chosen. Her humble state is this realization that she really is nothing special in the eyes of society or the eyes of her culture. And she recognizes God is engaging and coming to a very common, common person. And she'll continue on in verse 50. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones and has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised to our ancestors. And it's interesting now that she will focus her worship, not just now on what God is doing with her, but what God is doing on a much larger scale. She's recognizing what God has been doing and what God will continue to do, that he is going to scatter the proud, bring down the powerful, and he sends the rich away empty. The opponents of God And ultimately, the opponents of Jesus are the people who demand social status. They demand social respect, positions of honor. People who exclude the less fortunate or the socially unacceptable from having equality in society. These are the people that oppose, have been opposing God for generations and generations. Those who flaunt power and privilege and use it for their own selfishness. These are the people that will come against the purposes of God and ultimately oppress people. Mary says, God scatters, 
scatters the powerful, brings them down, sends the rich away hungry. For Mary, God is the God of a covenant who acts from a self-giving nature, a self-giving God who gives himself to men and women, all men and all women, to be in relationship with him. Mary is at the very beginning of the first advent that we will celebrate. And she recognizes the very heart of God and what's important to him. And her response is worship. She'll say that, that he lifts up the humble and he fills the hungry with good things. And so I had to ask the question in my own head, who are the humble who are the hungry that, that he will fill with good things? And I thought about it, and it came very quickly that the humble and the hungry, they're not us. Culturally, we are not the humble and the hungry. Culturally, we are the prideful, the rich, and the powerful. That's the truth. Look at our country. There, there's not a lot of hunger. And where there is hunger, we keep it very isolated. We keep it over there and over there in the inner city where it stays very nice, neat, and tidy. And then you, then you come out and, and none of us in this room really know what it's like to go hungry or really go without. Maybe you don't get the thing that you want, but we really don't go without. So we are the rich and we are the powerful. And I would argue that we are even the prideful. And I can't help but to believe that the marrying of, of socioeconomic status and justice is ultimately an act of worship. In part, worship is our response to the oppressed. In part, worship is our response um, to, to the poor and the, and the neglected and the forgotten and the sick and the hungry. For many churches, this is just the afterthought of their worship and not a focus of it. Justice and mercy are not add-ons to worshiping God. In fact, justice and mercy, they're not even a consequence of worshiping God. Justice and mercy are part of the very nature of who God is. And if that's the case, justice and mercy should be an intrinsic to how we worship God. Mary saw God, what he was doing. She knew what he would do. And her response was to sing his praise and worship. Joseph, Mary's husband-to-be, he finds out she's pregnant. And, and in this culture, a bride-to-be becoming pregnant was not so cool. In this culture, a bride-to-be becoming pregnant, not by her fiancé, is not cool. And it says that Joseph was a patient man. He was a good man. And, and he could have brought shame to Mary, but he chose just to kind of back out of this thing quietly. But, you know, we dehumanize this story so much because we've read it so many times. Think about, think about the conversation that went between Mary and Joseph. Joseph, I'm, I'm pregnant. And Joseph going, what, how, how? How can the, who? What, how can you do? Joseph, Joseph's heart must have been broken. His wife-to-be 
finds out she's pregnant. And he must have been very sad and asked, well, Mary, who? In her response, think of her response. Well, um, an angel came to me and said that the Holy Spirit got me pregnant. Yeah, okay. And it, and it sounds crazy to us, and it had to have sounded crazy to Joseph too. Think about it. But the story says that he was a good man. And he thought about it, and he's like, you know, I'm just going to bow out of this quietly. He could have brought her for public scorn and punishments, made her look really bad in front of her village, in front of society. But he chose just to let it go quietly. And then until the dream in chapter 1 of Matthew, verse 20. But as he, Joseph, considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear. Take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. God is about to enter the world and save us from our sins. He will enter into the very brokenness that he is looking to restore, that he is looking to put back together. At this point, Joseph realizes Mary is telling the truth. And he will take her as his, as his, um, his wife, and he will raise Jesus as his own son. Advent and Christmas should be a time that we remember that God has sent Jesus for all humanity. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world, everyone in the world, that he would give Jesus. And no matter what circumstances we find ourselves in, every human being needs to be reconciled back to God through a relationship with Jesus Christ. Everyone. No one is excluded in that. We all need to be rescued from our own sin, from our own pridefulness, from our own self-centeredness. And I would even argue that we Christians need to be rescued from the boredom that many of us have with the God with us. If God with us does not make a difference in your life, how can you go out and live it in a world and, and have it make a difference out there? And so Jesus came even to rescue us from our own selves. Rob Bell says that, that Jesus wants to save Christians. And so God sent Jesus for all of us. And then Joseph in the face of ridicule, in the face of it not making sense and, and look, possibly looking like a fool, he chose to obey God. He knew he can very well lose his social standing. He knew very well he, would lose, he could lose credibility, but he would take Mary as his wife. He would answer the call of God, no matter how crazy it really sounded. And so let's be honest, this whole Advent conspiracy thing, think about it. It sounds a little crazy, doesn't it? Like, okay, you're all going to supposed to spend less and give more. That means you might have to make gifts for people. You know what people do with like people that make gifts? Mm-hmm. Oh, this is nice. <whistles> Off to the side, right? 
What are your families going to think if you really put this into practice? What are your friends going to think if you really, I made you a bottle of wine. It's not fermented yet. I just crushed grapes with my feet. Oh, thank you. Good, 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 good. It doesn't make sense that we would engage our culture like this. What are they going to think when you, when, when you tell them that the reason why they're not getting a real nice gift this year is because we're going to take that money and we're going to love all people. We're going to love the oppressed and the poor and the forgotten and the sick, the people that Jesus also came to bring salvation to. It sounds a little crazy. Joseph answering, his, answering the call of God stepping out in obedience when it was just rubbed against what society dictated, rubbed against what the culture dictated, wasn't really the smart thing to do. His obedience was nothing less than an act of worship. And so I wonder for us, the church, can we we really worship God when it rubs against what our culture, what our society dictates to us? Matthew chapter 2, I'll start reading in verse 1. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in those days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea. So, For so it was written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judea, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, They offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. The story of the wise men. These guys are scholars. They're intellectuals, academics. They notice something going on in the skies. And these stars, they're they're thinking that they have foretold the coming of the king of the Jews. And so they are going to take a journey. And they, they load up and they go. They are looking for this king, the one who's been prophesied about. And now King Herod at the time, he is, he is the king that they go to visit. This is not a nice guy. He got to the throne by manipulating, by having um, relationships with, with, Rome, with Rome. He weaseled his way in to being a king. And he... Um, he ruled over his kingdom with, with an iron fist, with military might, with violence. He would kill his own sons because he, was, he felt threatened that they were trying to take the throne from him. This is a mean and very nasty guy. And the wise men, they must have had some type of clout because they get an audience with the king. And they go up to the king, these, these guys, and they say, where's the real king? 
This is the one that we've come to worship. This could have gotten them killed. If Herod wasn't so squirrely and so worried about this new king, he could have had them killed. But the wise men went anyway. In fact, Herod was so nervous about this king that when the wise men didn't return, he would send his military out and many, many young baby boys would be killed because of his insecurity, the king. So these two kingdoms, two kings are about to collide. One controls with financial strength and military might, and Herod was technologically advanced for his day. And the other king, the other kingdom would be revealed through vulnerability and a solidarity with the poor and the oppressed and just a selflessness and a self-giving. Two different kings Two different kingdoms, two very different worlds are about to collide. And when the wise men find Jesus, they find his house and they walk in. What's the story said that they did? They bowed down and worshiped. They didn't do anything for show. They weren't calling attention to themselves. They just bowed down and worshiped. And they would give this baby gifts because they're now worshiping the king. This journey could have cost them their lives, but they went anyway to worship a baby. We can learn a lot from these guys. We can learn about the rebirth of our own worship. They caught a glimpse of the king and they risked everything to go to see him in person. They confronted the world system of their day. They went right to its door and said, where is the king of the Jews, the one that's been prophesied about? And they went on to find him. What if Christians around the world can learn that? What if Jesus' followers moved across neighborhoods in towns, in states, in continents, and moved across the world, facing the world systems that would come up in front of us, and loving Jesus with our time, with our energy, with our attention, and with our resources. Would Christmas still, can it, would it change the world? If we can learn to worship as the wise men did. Mary and Joseph and the Magi, they were all part of the Advent story. They're all part of the Christmas story. And it's a story that's still taking place today. A story of Jesus' followers worshiping in real ways, not just with FaceTime in church. Standing with the least of these in the midst of the brokenness of this world, this is the way that God calls us to worship him. And we can choose to enter into our cultural Christmas and worship a false God. Or we can choose to enter into a biblical Christmas and worship the true God and watch as everything changes. Like Mary, we can begin to sing our praise to a God 
who saves. Like Joseph, we can worship by obeying the call of God, no matter what the personal cost would be. Even the shepherds in the, in the Christmas story, they leave the busyness of their jobs, of what they're doing, to go look for this king to worship him. And the wise men, that they would travel and face uh, the world systems, whatever was in their way, to go and worship the king, the true king. What if Christmas was like that for us? You know, we ask the question, can Christmas change the world? Maybe a better place to start is with this question. Can Christmas really change us? Let's pray. God, I want to thank you for um, the Christmas story. I want to thank you that we could worship, that you call us to worship in so many different ways. But God, let's not forget the worship that is most uncomfortable to us. Let's not forget the worship that is self-sacrificing and giving. And God, as we prepare for Christmas, um, let's find that balance of harmony between loving and giving to our friends and families, but focusing our attention and our hearts on Jesus. God, I want to thank you for grace. I want to thank you for mercy. I want to thank you for justice. And most, we want to thank you for Jesus. Amen.